Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast, new year, new episode. One of the cool things about innovation is looking at how new technologies and methods develop. After all the hype we heard about the metaverse and how it kind of disappeared, we hear little about people who actually find exciting use cases and put it to good use. Until today, I chat with Carlene Kriegler and David Wright, co-founders of Hello Ara, a tech-forward market research company in South Africa that has created a whole environment to run focus groups in the metaverse. So what does it mean to create a metaverse environment for market research? And how is AI utilized in several stages of its life cycle? What are the localization and cultural considerations for South Africa as opposed to the US or Europe? And how close are we to getting a hologram of Cher asking me about my beauty routine and skincare concerns? That's a spoiler, people. If you want to find out, let's get to the episode. Carlene and David, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. Very happy to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? I'm calling from Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks for having me. And I'm calling from the UK. Uh, it's nice to looking forward to our chat. Awesome. So first and foremost, can you tell me what Hello Ara is and how it came about? Hello Ara is a market research agency. We are experts in human understanding, but we like to use the newest technology to create methods that are relevant to people. So the participants, the respondents we're speaking to, to get the information from, but also they should focus on solving client problems best. I think when we started Hello Aura, we were of the strong belief that there were too many methods in market research that that is just a repeat of something that's been done for years and years without exploration of what can be better, how can technology play a stronger role to actually move closer to people and how they nat naturally communicate. So when we started Hello Aura, um, which was straight in the pandemic. Our focus was on using conversational AI, so using open data collected through chatbots to understand people better in their own words. Since then, we have obviously, with our focus on technology, developed other methods. So we are experts at analyzing unstructured data. Um, and also we have, since in the last year, we have started doing qualitative research in the metaverse. Um, so I think today we're going to talk a lot about that. So what does it mean to do market research in the metaverse? And how is it different from traditional methods? Can you paint a picture of what that looks like to a to somebody who is participating in this research? Okay, so the participant of the research, I think traditionally focus groups are done a lot these days on platforms like Zoom and Teams. So if we're all sitting in a conversation, looking at people we don't know, talking about very specific details of things that we are doing or feelings or even personal topics, I don't think that that is really conducive for a relaxed, deep conversation or honesty even. There's research that was done at the at the uh, through Stanford University where they proved that there is something like Zoom fatigue. If you sit in front of a screen looking at a stranger for a long time, your it really affects you emotionally, and also it affects your response. Uh, you would do things like look at yourself more than humans tend to look <laughs> look at themselves. You would 
worry about reading other people's body language. Are they bored with me? Am I not interesting? You might not want to disagree in a platform like that. So there's a lot of, although uh, online groups are amazing in terms of get, having access to people, um, there are also definitely some problems. So what we do with the metaverse is we take people into an environment uh, where they show up as an avatar and they can choose the avatar and then we create a contextual experience. So we've actually built um, and designed um, our own research lab, which can be customized to give context depending on the category and the topic we are talking about. We are doing this use in 2D at the moment uh, using a laptop screen. So it's simply a a platform where people will go in, they will log in, they'll use their avatar, and it's a beautiful research environment we've uh, developed that is multi-purpose. So you might ask the why we're we doing 2D. It's just because we believe research should be accessible. It shouldn't just be with an elite, you know, unique group of people. So it means that we can do this type of work in in many more markets and with many more people. Our thinking is that if you if you're using the um, devices, then um, you have an issue with access to respondents. Gotcha. So you're saying that with a laptop screen in 2D, it's a much more accessible market to participate. Much more accessible, yes. And still having a to have the, the goggles or... Yes. You know, like, I think like there must be about a billion people now who played Fortnite or used Roblox now. So I think everyone is used to those environments. Well, there's a, there's a large population of people who are used to like, I guess, 3D environments on a 2D screen. So they're used to those sort of ex immersive experiences and interacting and moving and um, spending a lot of time. So that's why I think it makes sense, whereas no one is really used to being using an Oculus yet, or not very many people. And even then, it's I think it's like Oculus has had a difficult run. You know, the I think usage is down and sales are down, but, you know, obviously Apple's launching this year. So yeah. I think it's been challenging to get the right model and it sounds like rather than being pure virtual reality it's moving to a more mixed reality so you can you know you can play a game and something can run along your table so I think it seems to be going more mixed reality but for us like most of the people have had these immersive experiences of uh, it's been 2D on 3D. Yeah and I'm sure that with the price point of the Apple goggles it's not going to be accessible <laughs> yeah. for many people. Um, so when you are doing this immersive experience, you are, I guess what the user sees is either they're sitting in a focus group or they're at a store location or something where the research is being done, where the questions are being yes, asked. Absolutely. So we've built a research environment um, that we mostly use that's got uh, multiple spaces that can be customized. So there's an auditorium, there's a smaller focus group setting, there's like a passage walkway, there's a big open area that's like a gallery. So all those spaces can be easily customized. And of course, through the use of all these visual AI tools, we can create images. Um, it's now easy to create, much easier and cheaper to create things like 3D objects. So it's it's very easy to create a contextual experience or bring um, the image of a pack or a test ads or, or even create, I mean, for some clients, we create whole new environments, like the work we've just done and presented at um, SMR Singapore, um, SMR Asia Pacific, there we built uh, an, an environment for a client that was a specific store and we took consumers into the environment. So in that way, you can do a simulation very fast, 
very affordably and create an experience that's far more contextual. You know, if we're sitting, looking at each other, talking about this versus if I was showing you the environment and we're in it, you you get a completely different experience. So right. just like that, that's what we do for people. Instead of talking about what do you think of X and what do you need need in terms of, you know, or working with boards, you're actually in it. You can walk around. It's a much different experience and i think that's what we try and do we need to get closer to people if we are using people in our research then we need to let them respond we need to let them feel comfortable we shouldn't give them huge grids with lots of things to read we should ask them what they think we should be clever with how we design questions and and create experiences because that's when we could get good data, you know. You can have beautiful analysis of open data, but if you don't have good data to start with, your analysis, I mean, what is it worth? This is definitely a universal thing. And so how was AI in general and generative AI in particular used in the simulation? I mean, it sounds like it helped create a realistic looking environment. Where was it used in this whole setup? So like we use generative AI to help us design the environment so we all have some ideas but a lot of it is about to, to be cost effective and quick we need to communicate our ideas in a meaningful way to a 3d designer and so using you know traditionally like writing a couple of paragraphs and and doing something in powerpoint is a terrible way of communicating to a 3d designer so we use generative ai to like form our ideas into images so we'll spend quite a lot of time First of all, thinking about what the environment needs to look like, and then we will design it using generative AI programs like Midjourney. We will design around what we know about the metaverse, which is it's sort of got to be simple and easy to use. Um, you know, the buildings have a certain look and feel. I think the buildings need to be be interesting, but not too, too complicated compli yeah like you were saying too complicated too busy because then it's distracting so they mean mm. these things we've learned right you need to consider the height of things above people's heads so so just like being human in a human room there's dimensions and like proportions that you need to consider yeah so just to give us some examples what uh, that like one the door heights because you've got to imagine mm. in a metaverse environment people often jump and do somersaults. So like if your door frame's too low and you you know your texture of your wall is complicated, it can literally get stuck in on your wall, which does happen. <laughs> and if there's many people walking through the door at the same time, like people can sort of get trapped. So you're trying to make a very user-friendly, it's almost taking the jagged edges out of the environment. So yeah, the doors will be very high and very wide, and generally our roof space will be very high. And then the other thing is like if we've got couches or furniture or things like that in the metaverse, we will also take that into consideration with the, the, the height of the ceiling just to make sure they can't literally jump into the ceiling. Mm. Those considerations, but I think generative AI means we can put those concepts together and design something that looks really cool. Very easily. Mm. And very quickly. And also, so mm. what we do is we do this I guess like beautiful design because we want it to look interesting because it's the metaverse but we also map out the you know roughly the, the dimensions of the space uh, and where things should go so when the designer comes along they know what the building needs to look like and then they know the dimensions but you know sometimes on our first project the designer gets stuck so like 
for instance, in a, a immersive lab, we I use the, the the Oberoi Hotel as one of the, the large space when you first come in was modeled after the Oberoi Hotel. And then the amphitheater was sort of modeled after, I guess, like a Greek amphitheater style. So it was very simple and blocky because those things work in the metaverse. So I think it's coming up with those ideas and we put it together and then we map out the dimensions and we give it to a designer. So the build is actually really quick. And, and we, we've, we've had that experience about getting the door heights right in the roof, you know, the ceiling, correct. And our second project, which was the subject of the paper we submitted in Singapore, and um, we designed this, this beautiful space, but we wanted it to be big enough so we could drop an entire retail or beauty environment straight into it. And there's plenty of room without it feeling crowded. So you can sort of stand apart from the room and have a discussion and then go into the actual beauty department to have all that, that space and let people move and be free without bumping into each other. I think, David, and please jump in as well. In, in terms of the actual, when we have people and when we have the groups, we've built a standard environment, which we've used again and again and again. And then for specific clients, we might design new environments with a specific purpose. But in the environment we've we've built, you can customize it to be in the inside of a store or a cafe or bring in objects or plants or decorate it differently. And for all of that, we use generative AI to customize it very quickly, turn it into now, you know, this room is in Paris or it has a theme or, you know, we're working with a sports brand. So maybe it looks like, you know, there's someone who loves football that lives in this place or whatever else it is. So Genius of AI helps us to really just come up with images to put in there alongside with 3D objects that then creates context. So we also use it for things like prompt cards, which is more practical, but in terms of research, you, you always need those sorts of things uh, to create experiences. And then, of course, we will use it in our analysis when we start doing that and things like transcripts and models and, you know, mapping our growth models and, and all those sorts of things. We do live co-creations in the metaverse and for that we use generative AI as well. So like you can ask someone, imagine what the children's area at the mall should look like. So like, you know, the kids are entertained while the parents shop. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just you can you can say, well, imagine what would that look like, or what would be very cool, and people can come up with ideas, and then you know, generative AI will bring those ideas to life, and then we, you know, you can talk about them some more. But then it means everyone in the the focus group or everyone in the environment can see that sort of an image, or an, it creates like mm -hmm. a really good focus fo focal point. And then the same thing for like ads or ad segments you can mm -hmm. come up with ideas and build and iterate so okay this ad looks like mm -hmm. this what how Lines. could it look how could it look better okay well it would look better if there were more plants and things in the background so you just generate that so you can sort of very quickly iterate on concepts and visual ideas and mm -hmm. um you know and then not too far in the future it's going to be video and and more with 3d objects or it could even be the environment itself so it could be like you're sitting in this environment and you're saying what is the per what is my perfect living room and you can probably generate it and then be in that environment you know really quickly and then all the objects within that perfect living room you can iterate and all those sort of things so it just means that I think respondents are, have got new avenues for expressing themselves and then focus groups have got new avenues for you know collaborating to bring ideas to life
One of the ways that you used LLMs was to create a synthetic responder that was a beauty assistant that humans could interact with and talk about their beauty regimen and their needs. And she could recommend products and regimens. Can you talk about what it takes to train an LLM for that? How much data you need to use, what kind of data and and what, you know, what the considerations are around that? Yeah, so like, I, I mean, I've learned quite a bit from doing that project and seeing people interact, but the, the way it works is, it's not so much about training the LLM. I know a lot of people talk about doing that, but what you do is you supplement the large language model by giving it access to a knowledge base. So that was the approach I took. So you'll see a lot of, of um, a lot of talk about, it's called retrieval augmented generation. And what that means is your bot is making a decision whether or not it's going to do a lookup against a database, which would be typically a product database. But obviously it's not like, it's not like a, a search, like a SQL search where you've got exactly, you know, select all products from L'Oreal that have price range this and, and the product must do this because no human's going to talk that way. So what they you do instead is, is called a vector-based search. So when someone says what they want, there's a vector search against the database of products and it'll closely as possible match or provide matches that are uh, the similar vector structure to what that respondent asked for. And so that's not an LLM. The, the LLM can make that decision to ask for data or it could be simpler than logic. But what the LLM is great at doing is it's going to remember the conversation first of all. So it's going to remember everything that person said to it and how like, so it has a, an understanding of how a conversation is going to evolve. And then what it does is it takes the knowledge that it's got back from the LLM, which could be nothing or it could be something useful. Mm -hmm. And it'll synthesize that in terms of what the person said and it's, using its personality and what is already said to that person to synthesize the best response to that person, which could be like, yes, some products, or actually we can't find anything. So I think you need to tell me more about, you know, your dry skin condition so I can find the correct product. So it's almost like the, the, the LNM is synthesizing and being told to give a certain style to the conversation, but it, it's synthesizing knowledge that is stored elsewhere and not within it. So that, that's sort of like the, the current style of doing this. So you're trying to make sure the LM is just synthesizing the conversation and not being the knowledge store, because then it can go off the rails a little bit. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I could invent, you know, here's the, mm -hmm. the perfect beauty solution that doesn't actually exist it, in right. the world. So it could, it could, so in this case, you're, you're kind of avoiding hallucinations. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's like the, the the large language model is making sure there's a sensible conversation, but it's not dictating the products. Interesting. Um, and I would say the second thing we wanted to try this live or experience in the metaverse, because it was just interesting to see how people would react to a large language model in the first place. You know, would they find it a bad experience? Would they not like talking to an AI or you know, well, would they like it? So it's just, it was even just at that level, just trying to get a feel for how people would react to this, because it's so surprisingly good in terms of the way it would respond and and share information. It was surprising to us, and like I'm just to, to one little technical thing, like we 
There's the GPT-4, which was the latest model that OpenAI released. Mm -hmm. They released another one called GPT-4 Turbo, which is cheaper and faster, but but it was so good. And we're, we're just assuming it's trained on customer service data because mm. the thing was so dang clever. It was very surprising. What was the response and people's reactions to uh, participating in a study that utilized AI like that? So I think firstly, I mean, we've done a lot of metaverse core work last year. We're talking about a specific project um, now, but in the last 12 months, we've done a lot of core groups in the metaverse and we haven't come across uh, someone who didn't enjoy themselves. You know, sometimes people end up, you know, friends or sometimes they end up saying, you know, this is so great. When can, when can I do this again? We've had someone who uh, who said at the start of the group, she's really down, you know, she's just not really feeling good. And the whole group sort of rallied around her and uh, made her feel better. And at the end of the group, she was just like, her day is made. She feels so supported. So there's something that happens in that space um, when people are together, that makes them relax in the metaverse. I think, obviously, not staring at strangers, being able to move around, you don't need to st sit still, having that little bit more of anonymity. The platform we use, you can show your face through a camera. So if you need to to do checks mm. on, you know, on respondents, you can do that. But then we encourage people to actually put it off so they can just relax. And there's something lovely that happens then um, they open up. In this particular study, our client learned things that they haven't heard before in lots of pieces of work. Because something like beauty is actually quite a sensitive topic. If you are talking about beauty and your skin is full of blotches or marks and, you know, everyone else has these, you know, perfect makeup, beautiful skin, it's going to be hard for you to admit to your challenges. So we find that people seem to open up quite a lot about this is a challenge for me because no one's looking at them, right? They can yeah. be open. So that's great. So I think overall people are very positive doing market research in the metaverse. Um, and then in terms of the interaction with the LLM, overall, it was just really positive. I think people in general just like their problems to be solved. So if that's done in a nice, empathetic way and they get what they need, I think they're okay with it. Yeah, I um, can see how added kind of layer of anonymity where you are part mm -hmm. of a group, but you do have your own personal space kind of lets mm -hmm. helps you let your guard down so that you can be yes. kind of more honest and participate more. Were there any disadvantages or did you notice anything where any cons to this approach? Was there anything that you had to sort of compensate for? I mean, I think one of the obvious things is if you uh, let people into a platform they haven't used before, you need to show them what to do. So if, you, if you're dealing with someone who's used to gaming, you don't need to explain yourself. Um, but if you are working with someone who hasn't done this before, or maybe, you know, if we work in markets like South Africa, we need to make sure that bandwidth <laughs> is good enough for people to have a good experience of that sort of environment. So we need to recruit for that, right? But in most markets, you know, the, the in the US and in Europe, you're not going to have those problems or those challenges, then I think it is important to give at the start, you know, there's a process that we follow so that people feel comfortable, they know how to move and they have a good experience. So so that that is important to watch, right? We all know how to, mm -hmm. to use Zoom. 
we can just click and unmute. And yet still, we have problems with people not knowing they're on mute. So even uh, with simple yeah. technology. Well, that's universal, and I don't think that's ever going to get solved. <laughs> yeah. So in this environment where there's slightly more um, to do or think about, it's just important to take people on a journey so that they're comfortable yeah. with using the technology. Now, you mentioned, and you made an excellent point as far as understanding your market and saying, uh, with this being done in South Africa, you have to be mindful of the fact that people have the technology or the infrastructure that will support it. And it leads me to another question about, were there considerations that you had to have localizing it to the South African market? And aside from technology, but if there, if this was repeated in Europe or in the US in terms of either training the AI or, or utilizing the metaverse, would anything need to be localized or changed? In terms of the metaverse uh, environment that we've designed, it probably can be universally used. Again, you just need to, you know, if you're going to work in um, a market where data is expensive or people don't have access to, again, you need to think about that. Um, I think more in terms of the, the assistant that we built, there's definitely, you know, you need to think of, in some languages, people use more words and they're more verbose. In other markets, you know, you would want an LLM to say less. Um, she also had a visual. Um, so, of course, we adjusted that to be uh, a woman who who looks South African that a lot of South African women would feel comfortable with. You need to check for like tone and accent. I mean, some markets are more formal than others. So if you if you do something like that assistant, then you need to, of course, think about the culture and how people respond. And I think similarly, but like with any research, you need to design for the market that you're in. So absolutely, culture, absolutely. You're going to know how are people going to respond. How do you open them up? What are the techniques you need to use? Yeah, that definitely extends to new technologies as well. The voice was obviously customized to be local, but we had to, we, we picked a, like an off-the-shelf off voice. And that was a little bit difficult because we generally use either Google or Azure and the coverage in South Africa for Microsoft Access wasn't very good. So that's why we had to use Google. But you can take it a step further by training off someone like a, a voice model or similar mm. and then train your you train the voice system. So that's got a uh, as modeled off someone. And then again, the image we use took an image from like a, a staff member and then just use that as a basis for generative ai to extrapolate from so she's she's sort of looked like she came from the store i think that's sort of important and you know it would be interesting we're thinking for the future you know whether or not like these ais will be like clones of influencers so you'll actually be licensing a voice or the appearance of an influencer and then using that as your, you know, your focus point for your beautiful AI. So I think that's probably going to be the case for, I don't know what the licensing implication is going to be interesting because I guess if you're an influencer and you've given away your voice for all perpetuity, you know, what does that mean for you or your likeness? You'll be catching a bus and you'll see yourself go past on the bus on an advertising. That's definitely uh, something that's coming up now with, uh, you know, the writer's strike in the United States was partially about that, about what you do with now with AI being able to kind of regenerate people's voice and likeness.
That's an interesting one because I think someone re uh, used Tom Hanks to advertise, I don't know, like a hamburger grill somewhere, but it wasn't him. Um, but it's the same thing, I think, but, you know, just talking aloud, it might be that that's a, it is a dangerous thing to do is just to clone something off one influencer. Maybe it'll be a high, maybe in the future it'll be a hybrid or perhaps that the influencer will have to be some sort of time-based rules around it so you can't this you don't own that person's voice for the rest of the rest of existence but i think things like that might mean that these these ais get more traction because they're they, they're representing someone who's already famous or i think that does make sense and also i mean it could be uh, some model where like you said if you kind of blend a few influencers together and then you know, you need to compensate them accordingly. And so just like with, you know, today with training of LLMs and who get, you know, and compensating the the people who originated the data could be something like that. But I would love to have a beauty assistant with Cher's voice telling <laughs> me or asking me questions about beauty regimen and uh, giving me Cherisms along the way. I and think- who, who should she look like? Uh, <laughs> 70s share. I'll I'll take 70s. Uh, share. <laughs> um, cool. and and so speaking of all this, where where do you see what's kind of next, and what are your future learnings? Where are you taking this from here? I think that we think so. Maybe we can record this again, but let's see. I think where we're at is we think that there's going to be so many more changes to generative AI that it's very difficult to predict exactly who should do what next, right? So I think we're still very focused on um, conversational research because the generative AI is a natural friend of open data, right? So we can uh, do very detailed, in-depth research that solve challenging client problems. Um, obviously, everyone is talking about synthetic data. I think we use it for things like background research or desk research, but we feel like the kind of like challenging problems in the current state of synthetic data, we, we're not believing that it's going to solve all clients' challenging problems. So there's probably a journey that that um, people will take with synthetic data to figure out what is it really good for. I agree. Um, Still on a journey. I think that in terms of qual research, since we started doing this research in the in the metaverse, you know, we have clients that are such big fans that they're saying we will never do traditional qual research again because we're really? seeing what we're getting from this. Yes, that's amazing. So. Yes, it is. And I think our, because, I mean, David is the RAI expert, so he can talk more about this, but we, we feel because there's going to be so many rapid improvements in generative AI, doing research in the metaverse is going to be even more amazing because, you know, if you can on the fly create videos and experiences and 3D's environments, like he was describing, you know, it's like it will be very fast to come up with new things that are amazing for people and that you can test in context. So we absolutely believe that where we are now is on a journey. We continue to focus on open data and using Genesis AI for analytics that are better than before, not just faster and cheaper. New measures, new thinking, integrating models. I guess, like we've got, you know, some 
basic philosophies as well about how we approach things like OpenAI, we we tend to like to use these products directly. Whereas I think, you know, there's obviously a raft of companies who are sort of almost creating middleware around uh, GPT and mm-hmm. its competitors. But we prefer to, to connect straight into the source because it means, you know, we get immediate access to any changes or, yeah, I mean, even that, you know, there's scares with that. I mean, for all the beautiful things you can do with generative AI, it's also very... If you look at Sam Altman and how they ousted him from his company and one week later he was back. So, like, when that happened, you know, I personally looked at alternatives. You've got, you've got the open source models like Llama. You know, there's some competitors. So I think the competitors all of a sudden saw an upting, upswing in interest. So I think like we've still got, even though the stuff is an amazing area, you're constantly thinking, okay, if that stops, what are my alternatives? Right, there is an, a yeah. stability issue, yes. So, so always always keeping an eye on that. And then I think then back to the digital assistance, where I mean, you, th- you think ahead, it's like, I guess these things have become easier and easier and easier to do. So what does that mean when every brand and every retailer and every person can create like a, whether it's a, an assistant from themselves or an assistant for their brand or a, an assistant to train employees, you know, where, where does all that go? Um, will it all become very samey? Or how do you, you know, differentiate it and whether that's through personality or knowledge, just to make sure, because it's amazing how quickly people get used to things like chat GTP when I first mm. used it, it was magical. Yeah. Then like six months later, okay, I just take it for granted. So I think it's mm. just, you know, how those things play out, but it just feels like it, it's going to move very quickly. So for us, we want to be connected directly into a- APIs mm. and things and move quickly. And then for our, obviously our work in, a, in an immersive, I mean, I think one of the big stumbling blocks for immersive, and I think we met Meta and maybe Mark Zuckerberg went wrong, is the build and create, you know, the creator tools weren't there for it to, to happen. It was too controlled. It, it almost needed like a MySpace moment of glitter and all sorts of crazy things happen and people be able to express themselves. And I think that phase never happened. So I think generative AI will mean that, you know, creators can participate in, these immersive environments and create incredible things and then I think it'll take off so yeah it's just I think it's exciting times but it's also I think it's brushing up against legislation and legislators and all those things so that's there's a lot of sort of it's just I think it's just going to be interesting between innovators and legislators yeah that's always going to be the tug of war and I think you're right that um, whatever the changes that are going to happen are going to happen fast this year Yeah, yes. Yeah, for sure. So we all need Mm -hmm. to buckle up, turn on our virtual AI assistants. And Mm -hmm. uh, try things. Yeah, try (laughs) things and go along for the ride. And I think, like, I would like to add, like, what's important is, like, we are a market research business, yes, and our clients are there to meet the needs of people. So I think in, in this whole AI race and talk about AI, we need also a renewed focus on understanding people. And yes, AI is a way to get there, but people are still people with needs and uh, the need to find things that are interesting and different. And so our job is to help our clients in a world where everyone has access to the same easy AI now. How are our clients going to actually stand out and be different? Yeah. Carlene, I think you make an excellent point that at the end of the day, all of this technology and AI all needs to be human-centric at the end of the day. 
and to serve the the needs of the people mm -hmm. before the uh, machine overlords take over one day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so thank you so much. Where can people find out more information about you? Uh, well, our website is helloara.io. Uh, we're quite active on LinkedIn, so you can connect with us there and our page there. We post quite a lot about some of the things we do. Um, and we're also re regular conference speakers. Um, we think it's important to contribute to the industry by publishing. So you'll also see us at SMR. Um, our next speaking engagement is IAEX um, US. I've, I've spoken at that conference. It is a lot of fun. I have yeah. some good uh, restaurant recommendations for you in Austin. Oh, yes. Oh. We must talk. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, Carlene and David, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. This was super, super interesting. Thanks again for talking. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>